So I want to jump into um, a new series that we're going to start this morning called The Greatest Story Ever Told. I didn't. No. Okay. Thank you. That was something. How did somebody break this thing? All right, we're good. We're totally fine. It is the great. Let's just take a minute. I want to talk to you about the greatest story ever told and getting into the place of understanding just how awesome the story of God's mercy for us is. And and I do want to distinguish here because we call this the greatest story ever told, but the reality is that what God has done for us is not a myth. It's not a legend. It's not a story among other stories. It is the truth about what God has done for us. And so being able to focus on that and kind of refocusing, getting back to that place once again, okay, what really matters in my pursuit of God? What really matters in what we're doing in Christianity, what matters in my personal life in the way that I'm pursuing Jesus. And so we're going to spend time over the next five weeks going through this entire story. Where did it start? What happened among humanity? What did God do? What was his plan all the way through Jesus and the early church and going into the end times of what God did and what he has planned for all of us. But it is the greatest story ever told. Now I know that among some of you in here, I have heard some of your stories. I've heard your stories about hunting. I've heard your stories about fishing. I've heard your stories about shopping. I've heard your stories about family. I've heard all kinds of stories because deep down inside, we are all good storytellers. We love to tell a story. But I really want to put this into our minds that this is the story that we should be sharing with everyone in the world around us. This is the story that should get us excited. Um, I have a friend of mine years ago that came to my church. He's an evangelist. He is a redneck cowboy. Okay. His name is Colt Barber. Okay. And he always used to talk about it this way. I love this phrase that he used. He would talk about the gospel and he'd say, if that don't get your tractor crunk, your tractor can't be crunk. All right. And I love that phrase. I was like, okay, that I'm with you, Colt. So my hope is that as we get into the story of God's faithfulness, that it's going to get our tractor crunk. All right. That we'll get excited. And for those of you who are English majors, I do apologize. But I want to go all the way to the beginning of the story. We're going to talk today kind of creation through the flood. Uh, This is going to be more of a teaching series, if you will, not quite as sermonic as we normally are into on a Sunday morning. But I really think it's important for us to focus on these things. So right here at the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over over the surface of the waters. Now I want to start here because this is so important and I think that given the differing opinions on what we see in our world today, it's important for us to start at the beginning to understand where it all comes from. You know, it amazes me to think that the amount of information that is passed on to us on a daily basis is ever increasing. For much of the human existence, information came through in little drips here and there, little drips, little drips. Today, we are in the place where it's like we've got to take a drink from a fire hose. And we've got to try to get all of the information that's being thrown at us every second of every day, process it, understand it, think about what it means in relation to my understanding of God, my relationship with God, my faith, my beliefs. And so I think there are a few things about creation that we can look at here that are are really important. I want to start with this. Number one, you were not descended from monkeys. Now, 
I know that there are a few people in your lifetime that you've met that made you question that theory, right? There are a couple people along the way. You just, you meet them and you're just like, hmm. no, we're not, we're not, we're created. But no, we are not descended from monkeys. Listen, I've been to the Smithsonian Institute and they have an entire floor with all these skulls all over the place talking about how we're descended from monkeys. They refuse to accept the reality of something very important, which I think is, we don't talk about enough, but it's called Romer's Gap, which means that there is a period throughout history that we have absolutely nothing, that there is nothing existing anywhere in that time period that we can see that's life. And that is the moment in history that I believe that the book of Genesis starts with. And we have to be very careful when we read the book of Genesis because, number one, there is what it is saying, but we have to be very careful, too, to not put too much into what it's not saying. So I want to look at this because this very first verse here is very important to us because there's a Hebrew phrase that comes out of this that we need to understand about the earth in the beginning of time. Here is this phrase. When we look at it and we read that the earth was formless and empty, the Hebrew there is that it was tohu vabohu. All right? Now stick with me for a second. I want to explain tohu vabohu to you. How many of you, when your children were born, you set up a special room just for them to be born? Not to be born, but to live in, right? Set up your kid's room. So we did this, Jess and I, when we were having Tessa, we, put, we had this room in our house. It was our spare room. We cleared everything out, and we, we bought a crib, and we had like a Noah's Ark theme going on, right? So there was the bumper around the crib, and there was a little blanket and the pillows, and there were stuffed animals, and we had this beautiful um, drapes on the windows, and the rugs were clean, and nice dresser. So we put it, and we looked at it, and we're looking, and we're like, this is beautiful, Right? Now, the problem is, I let my kids live in those rooms. And when I walk in and I see their rooms, they are tohu vabohu. <laughs> Meaning, there was a perfect order to all of this, and it's destroyed. I don't know about you, but sometimes I walk into my kids' rooms. I just can't believe. I don't know. I don't remember ever teaching my children to get dressed by going to the dresser and doing this. And finding clothes everywhere. Why don't you wear that? I don't like that. Okay. This is the phrase, tohu vabohu, meaning that it had existed the earth was here. We're reading that the earth is void and formless. There's nothing left to it because here's a reality that we have to often understand. We know that in history of the world, there was such a thing called dinosaurs, right? We don't read about them in the Bible. In fact, when I was in youth ministry, I got asked this all the time. I would let teenagers, hey, ask a question that you've always wanted to ask. One of them I would get all the time is, why, why are there no dinosaurs in the Bible? The reason being because we're looking at a moment in time in history where the earth was completely destroyed. And again, science even says, we look at a moment in history, there must have been some kind of cataclysmic event that destroyed all of life on earth. And this is the moment that we're looking at. When God looks at it and he says, it's tohu vabohu, I put it together, I had it perfect, it was set up the way that I wanted, but now it's destroyed. I have to start over again. I have to create again. I have to go to the beginning again. And so we look at this, and it says, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm working. Now, God speaks life into existence. In the Latin, this is referred to as ex nihilo, right? Ex nihilo means out of nothing comes something. And God's the only one that can do that. He speaks, and just because he said it, it happened. 
And so all of creation happens this way. And so here's what it looks like for the first six days. Light and darkness, land and sky, plant life, the sun, the moon, and the stars, birds and sea life, animals, and then finally, his greatest masterpiece of all time, you and me. Now I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, you're a masterpiece. If you came with your spouse, capitalize on this moment, right? Like, like straighten up your collar and be like, babe, I know I don't say this enough. You are a masterpiece. I tried to tell my wife that in first service. She would not even look at me. <laughs> if you know any good counselors, we're looking. God says, I saved the best for last. And, and so this is what we read in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. It says, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Just a brief stop here. This is the first place in scripture where we read about the Trinitarian idea of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because he's speaking in plural. Let us create human beings in our image to be like us. So God is speaking plurally here. Then he says, they will reign over the fish of the seas, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Want to stop there too. This is very important because in creation at the very beginning, we do not read any distinction between what God says as far as men and women. In the very beginning, he says, no, I made them exactly the same to be image bearers of mine. And it isn't until after the fall that we see any kind of distinction. Then it says, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, govern it, reign over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Now I want to stop here. Because this is what God has created. This is the beginning of what he says is ordered and perfect. And there are a couple of things that we need to take out of this. Number one, when we read through... The, the book of Genesis, in fact, the first five books of the Bible, we need to understand what kind of history they are. They are recorded history, but they are not a written history. Now, I want you to understand the difference between the two of them. A written history is if we go back and we say, hey, I would like to study uh, the Civil War. You can find eyewitness accounts of things that took place during the Civil War. You can even, in Scripture, go and read the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the book of Acts. These are books that were written from a first-person account of the gospel. The book of Genesis is the story of God's people, the origins of humanity, the origins of the world, and it was passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation before it was ever recorded as history. And so I think there are a couple of things that we've got to have a little bit of give and take on here, okay? Number one, whether you believe in the creation of God or you are a devout atheist that believes in the chance of all things being what they are, we all have to live by faith, okay? Here's where we have to get to. Number one, you either believe that God spoke things into existence and created them in perfect order, or you believe in what's called chaos theory. Let me, let me summarize chaos theory for you really easily, Okay? According to chaos theory, by now, someone in the world somewhere should have opened up their dryer and found their favorite shirt completely folded and sitting on top perfectly. That's chaos theory. It is this idea that out of chaos, chance can cause some things to work together to bring order. So, and I mean, that would be big news, right? They would at least be on Facebook. Somebody would take a picture and be like, 
I'm telling you what, I opened the dryer and there it was, my favorite shirt, totally folded like it just came from the store and it was sitting right there on top, it was perfect. That is the concept of chaos theory. So you can either put your faith in the fact that there is a creator God who spoke things into existence, or you could put your faith in the fact that somewhere in the history, the recesses of the world, some strange event took place that total chaos organized everything. I'll say for me, for myself, I don't have enough faith to believe in chaos. I believe God spoke and it happened. It existed. But God put this together. He ordered it and he said it was perfect. And this is what's recorded in the book of Genesis. The very beginning of the greatest story ever told is that God started with perfection. He started just like you did when you put your kid's bedroom together. The way that you envisioned it, the way that you saw it, you wanted the bed here and you wanted the light to come in this way. You wanted the lamp there and you wanted the rug here and you wanted the stuffed animals set up this way. You put it together and you, you had a vision and you saw it and it was perfect. But then the same thing that happened to God, that happens to us happened to God. We let our kids live in it, right? And then it doesn't look the same ever again. And this is exactly what God did. So he sees this brokenness that comes in. Now, here's what happens. I know I'm going really fast here. I feel like I'm giving you a little bit of a fire hose history. But the first 15 chapters of Genesis cover, at at minimum, nearly 2,000 years of history. Um, And in some theories, could be as much as 20,000 years of history. So we're just going to go a little quick here. Genesis 3, verse 1 says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Church, this is the moment where the story turns. When God started to write this story, when he started to put things into creation and into existence and into order, he did so perfectly. And, and I want to say this because I, this is an argument I hear far too often, is this question against God when we're asking, if God is so good, then why did he create things that are so bad? Can I please tell you this? God did not create brokenness, sickness, sin, and destruction. We did that. God created a perfect world. It would be like saying, when I go to visit your house and I see your bedroom, why did you mess your kid's room up like that? You'd be like, <laughs> me, me? Now, I don't want to ask about what your bedroom looks like, and please don't ask what mine looks like. All I can say is my clothes are put away. <laughs> Listen, what happens in second service stays in second service. <laughs> We are often blaming God for something that we did. Why did God make sickness? Why did God make this and this? And he didn't. God made something perfect. But a question that destroyed all of it, that lingers to this day, was at the very center of it. Did God really say And you know, there's something taking place in the Christian world today, the evangelical world. It's definitely something on my radar. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called deconstruction. We have a lot of people who were raised in the church who are going through kind of a metamorphosis in their lives. They are deconstructing their faith 
They are looking at things that they've always believed, that they've been taught, that they've been trained, and they're looking at it and they're beginning to pull back because this very same question is beginning to nag at them in every way imaginable. They're beginning to hear the same thing that Satan used to Eve. Did God really say? Did God really say that homosexuality is a sin? Did God really say that? And so we go, hmm, I don't know, maybe he didn't. Maybe he didn't say that. Maybe, maybe we got, he's using the exact same lie again. Did, did God really say that, that sin, that premarital relations is a sin? Did God really say that this is a sin? Or that, did God really say, did God really say, did God really say? And we're falling for this over and over again. And it's at the very center of the fall of humanity is that same question. Did God really say? You know, Satan knew that if he went to Eve and said, you know, I know God told you not to eat from that tree, but you could do it anyway. Eve would be like, no, I can't. I can't do that. God said I can't. No, he had to tear at the very fiber of why she couldn't. He had to ask, did God really say that? Did God really say that's not okay? And it's right here and in this moment that the story drastically shifts. Because God did really say, but humanity really didn't follow through. So you flash, flash forward, flash forward 10 generations And you read this in Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6. God is speaking about the time of Noah and the flood. It says that the Lord observed the extent of the human wickedness on the earth. And he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. How sad. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart broke his heart. God said, I made everything perfect and I set it up to have order, to be filled with blessing. And I look and I see that my creation who was drug away by one simple question, did God really say, should God really be first in your life? Should God really have a place of prominence in your life? Does relationship with God really matter? Does, does going to church really matter? Does reading your Bible really matter? Does praying really matter? All of these questions that keep inundating the people of God and dragging them further away. And he looks, and I, and I think we could maybe echo this thought as we look around our world today, that he says that everything they think and imagine is consistently and totally evil. I look around and I see the evilness of everything they're doing and it's just like, I I just can't believe it. And God's like, I never, never intended for things to be this way. You know, I look at this and right now, it's really in our culture, we're talking a lot about the idea of abortion again. You know, I look, God says in in the book of Jeremiah, when they're talking about human sacrifice of babies, he says, I never asked for that. It didn't even cross my mind how disgusting it would be for you to kill your own children. That's what he looks at and that's what he sees. And he goes, I, I just, I look at the wickedness of it and I'm, my heart is broken. I believe the heart of God breaks even today over the things that he sees in the world. But in this time of Noah, he witnesses it. And we're not even 10 generations into his creation. And he looks at it and he's just, I, I can't believe how quickly they became so wicked and turned against me. And so he says, I look at it and it just, it broke my heart. It broke my heart. 
This is where the flood comes in, and we see you know, we're, these generations that come right after Adam is Seth, and then Enos, and then Canaan, and Mahalalel, and Jared, and Enoch, and then Methuselah. He lived to be really, really old. In fact, Methuselah was still living when the flood happened. Lamech, and then finally Noah. We all know the story of Noah. Noah and the ark, Noah and the flood. And listen, I'm not just talking about these things as though they're stories. There are people who want to say that the, it's the story of the flood, this idea. Listen, you can, and go do research on it, because I was doing a little bit of it myself this week. There is archaeological evidence for a great flood that took place in the Mesopotamian region. Thousand, I mean, they, they estimate 20,000 years ago. They said that they can see in the sediment that there, is, there are elements that display that at one point in time that the seas in that region raised by 400 feet instantaneously. They said there's no way to even explain it. But it's in history. You can read it. And these things happen and they're real. And God said the reason for this is I have to start over again because I'm looking at my creation. I'm looking at the things they're doing to each other. I'm looking at the things they're doing to themselves. I'm looking at the brokenness and how messed up it is because I didn't make it this way. I didn't design it this way, but it's become so broken. So he said, once again, I got to start over. I've got to try once again so that I can bring blessing to my people. So God brings the flood. And that only Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives, and the animals were spared from. And again, we can go really too far off of the deep end here about whether or not the flood was regional, whether or not the flood was, was all over the world. I, I tend to believe it was all over the world because there are tons of different stories throughout history where people have tried to understand this flood that took place. It is a reality, and God said, I had to do this because... I have a plan because I want to do something awesome because I want to work all things back to where they need to be. And finally, after the flood takes place, and this is where we're going to kind of stop today with this, this beginning of this story, God looks at Noah and his sons and he says, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants. And with all the animals that were on the boat with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, every living creature on earth. Remember back in Genesis 1, he says, I'm creating humanity in my image, and they're going to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every animal that creeps along the ground. He says, I'm renewing my covenant with you and with them. Yes, I'm confirming my covenant with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. The reality of this moment sets in that... From the very beginning, God says, I had a plan to fix it. And this is the part of the story that I think we really need to latch on to as we go into these next several weeks of, of going through the story of what God accomplished through his people is that at the very beginning, God said, I've got a plan to fix it. In fact, if you go back and read in Genesis 3, the fall of humanity... It speaks in that moment, and God gives punishment to man. He, he says, listen, because you sinned against me, he says, Eve, because you sinned against me, now childbirth is going to be painful, and it's going to be really hard for you, and it's, it, it's going to be a terrible thing. Adam, because of what you did, the ground is not going to produce for you the way that it used to. You're going to have to toil, and it's going to be difficult, and you're going to have to work the earth by the sweat of your brow. He just talks about all these things, and then he says, but, but, someday, I'm going to raise up out of your offspring a Savior. 
and he will crush the head of the serpent. God looks at the brokenness of humanity the same moment that we would probably say it just broke his heart. He says, I'm heartbroken, but I have a plan to fix it all. I have a plan to restore it. And so God makes this promise to Noah. And you know what? We look at the next 10 generations that come after that. We see Shem and Arphaxad and Salah and Eber and Pelug and Reu and Sarug and Nahor and Terah all the way to Father Abraham. We're talking about another thousand years before Abraham comes onto the scene, the, the beginning of what God says I'm going to do to restore the brokenness of humanity. But church, this is God's story of redemption for us. He says, I made it perfect, but you messed it up. But that's okay, because I love you. There is nothing in this world that I love more than you. There is nothing in all of creation that I love more than you. I made you in my image. God said, I want to restore what you broke. I want to fix what you broke. You know, there have been one or two occasions in my life. It doesn't happen often. But I'll go in and I have cleaned my children's room. It's painful. It causes you to question a lot of things about life. I've only done this a couple times. I'll go in. I remember, in fact, it's probably been four or five years since I've done this. My daughters, they shared a room. And I went into their room and I just cleaned the whole thing. I just took everything out, folded everything. I put it all away. I returned it back to order. And I felt good doing it. I'm like, mm. And they came home. <sighs> so I won't do that again. It's, I'm not God. Forgive me. But you know, I, I did. I was just, it was a kind of a joy. I'm like, hey, I'm returning order here. Everything's going to be different now. And, and you, if you're a parent, you've done this. I'm going to teach my kids to be organized now. We're going to get this down. I'm going to show them there's a drawer for this and there's a drawer for that. There's a place for this and you hang this up here and you stick your shoes there and you're just so excited thinking about it because you're like, I got this. We're going to get this. Our kids are going to be so organized. When people come over, they're going to, I'm going to want to show them my kid's room because of how organized they are. Lord bless you. and keep. No, it doesn't work that way, does it? Because our efforts, our greatest efforts to restore order are often just completely washed away because it's in the human condition. It's part of us. It's just part of us. And, and God says, I see that part of you and I love you anyway. And we look at our kids, right? And we, I mean, hopefully you're not like threatening to kick your children out over their messiness. You still love them. They might drive you nuts, but you love them. You would do anything to help them even though they can't keep your perfect order in order. And God says, that's how I feel about my children. That's this part of the story. The beginning part is here. He said, you know, I, I set everything up to be perfect and it was supposed to be right. And I just handed it over to my creation and said, okay, I want this to be blessing for you. I want it to be awesome for you. But it got all messed up and it got messy and broken and destroyed. And I still love them. And I'm still working out how I'm going to save them. I'm still working and giving every effort of myself. And this is his promise to Noah. 
And he's saying, I renew my covenant with you. I renew my covenant with you. I destroyed all of humanity, but I make this new promise to you. I am not going to do that ever again. I am going to devote myself day in and day out to working tirelessly to restore order back to creation. We eventually see Jesus come onto the scene. We won't get to that today. But this is where it leads to. Church, I want us to take this away as we are starting into this very beginning of the greatest story ever told is that God always has a plan. You know what I felt in in first service, I felt this and I feel this again for our second service. You know, I know that there are some of you in here who your parents, maybe your children are a little bit older and you can really identify with what God spoke about his creation. He says, I look at them and I see the decisions they're making. I see the things that they're doing and it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. I'm so broken for them. I just wish they could get it. I wish that I could just do something where I go in and I restore order and they just get it. I wish I could fix it. And God identifies with that. And I I just, I feel so impressed to let you know, remind you of that this morning. That if you're in that place where you're looking and you just, your heart hurts for your kids and the things they're doing, the decisions they've made. God has a plan to save them. He's always had a plan to save his creation. Ever since the beginning, it's always been his plan. I want to save them. I want to save them. I want to save them from themselves. I want to save them from each other. I want to restore them. And you know, it isn't, like I said, as we're reading through these genealogies here, it's 10 generations, a thousand years. Listen, I don't know about you. I don't have that kind of patience. To wait a thousand years for God to do something. And maybe for some of you, as you've been waiting on God to do something for your kids, it feels like, God, I've been waiting a thousand years for this. God, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting to the point of embarrassment here. I'm waiting to the point of losing hope. I want you to hear me, please. God has a plan for your family, for your kids, for their future. He's going to keep working tirelessly. That was his promise to to Noah and his family. I renew my covenant that I am going to work tirelessly to pursue you and restore order day in and day out from now until the end of history. That's what God's doing for your kids. That's what God's doing for your grandkids. And I believe that God can still work and do a miraculous turnaround in them if we give him the opportunity. But I encourage you, and I I do believe this, I'll share it for the rest of my life. I would not be where I am today if not for praying parents. Do not, please do not think that your prayers are in vain. They make a difference. They make a difference because those kids need to be covered by the blood of Jesus. God put us in his story And he's the greatest part of ours. And he's working all things together for our good. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the way in which you have worked in history in our lives. We thank you, God, that you are constantly working all things together for the good of those who are called according to your purpose. We thank you that you're so merciful, God, that even in our sin and brokenness, Even when we have broken your heart, you still look at us compassionately.
still wanting and desiring to save us. And God, I pray that as we go through the the history of what you have done for us, as we revisit the greatest story ever told, that we would truly take hold of how miraculous it is. That it would just be rebirthed in our hearts how awesome you have been and will be as we trust you. And God, I thank you that you are still fulfilling your promises even when we can't see it. I just want to ask, I think specifically for those of you who are here this morning, maybe you're a parent, a grandparent, but if you're here and you say, you know what, I, I have experienced that heartbreak of watching my kids do what I didn't want for them to do in their lives. I've experienced that heartbreak of watching my grandchildren make decisions that I didn't want them to make in their lives. If that's you, I just want to ask you to slip up a hand because I want to pray specifically for that this morning. Yeah, yeah, quite a few of us have been touched by that. Can I ask you to stand as we pray for this? And I don't say let's pray for this like, all right, we'll just, we'll say a quick prayer and be done with it. That's it. That's the end of our service. I believe this, that the power of prayer moves mountains. I believe that the power of prayer softens hearts. I believe that the power of prayer brings people into our kids and our grandkids midst that helps them to awaken and see that God loves them. And that's what I want to loose. Jesus told his disciples, whatever you bind on earth would be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth would be loosed in heaven. I want to loose the blood of Jesus over your kids and grandkids. So let's, let's pray that way this morning. And maybe if you're a parent who has walked that, who saw your kids come back, praying for these parents who are still facing that right now. So let's pray and believe by faith as we loose this for our kids today. God, right now in Jesus' name, we just believe what you said to your disciples, that whatever is bound on earth would be bound in heaven, that whatever we loose on earth would be loosed in heaven. And Lord, right now, by the blood of Jesus, we lift up our kids and grandkids to you. God, we lift up those who have broken our hearts. We lift up those who were given a godly upbringing, who were given the opportunity to know you and to draw close to you. And much like has happened throughout history where they turned away and they walked, God, we lift them to you because you love them. Your heart is broken for them a hundred times more than ours. And God, I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to go to them, to quicken to them, to speak to them where they are right now in this moment, to whisper love and mercy into their ears, to say, son, daughter, I'm here. I love you. I have a plan for you. I want to restore you. I want a covenant with you. I want to show you the plans I have for your future. God, would you just move sovereignly and powerfully in your kids? Would you awaken the greatest story ever told in their lives? Lord, would you water the seeds once again that have been planted in their hearts? Lord, maybe seeds and dreams and thoughts that have gone dormant, that they, they've forgotten about God. Lord, would you water those seeds again and just awaken it within them, Lord Jesus? God, we give our kids to you. We give the future to you. We give the next generation to you. And we believe, God, that you are going to continue to pursue them with your reckless love. God, we know that you have a plan for their lives. And I pray, God, that before it's too late, each one of them would have the opportunity to turn and seek your face. And so, God, we give them into your hands and we believe with expectation for you to become part of their story again. And we thank you, God, because you're faithful. 
We give you glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, amen means so be it. Let it be done according to what we have just believed by faith. And let's believe that by faith. God wants to do something awesome in your kids. Our prayer team will be here at the front to pray with you. If you want prayer for your kids, our prayer team would love to lift them up by name and pray with you. If you need prayer for anything else, they'll be here. Um, That meeting for our summer blast is in the cafe. But Lord bless you. Have a wonderful